Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. It's a, a privilege and an honor to be here, and thank you for that introduction. Uh, uh, bear with me. I have three hours to preach this sermon, so I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> we, can, we can do like the, the, the Great Awakening where they preached all day long, but, uh, but it is a privilege to be here, and uh, it's an honor. Uh, our text for today is Psalm 93. But before we get into the text, um, the title of the message is The Majesty of the Lord's Reign. And when we think of a, the reign or the rule of somebody, somebody that's in sovereign uh, leadership, a leader of a country or a nation, what a perfect day. We think about the, the 4th of July, right? Uh, where a human ruler uh, in England uh, was oppressing uh, his citizens, right? Uh, and that's the whole point of uh, the revolution here in our country. And men and women stood up against that corrupt rule and, and fought against it. But on that note, I think of, when I think of the rule and the corruption of human rule, I think of the Reformation. And I'm going to give you a little bit of church history. Um, I, I enjoy church history. And uh, I go back to the Reformation in the, the 1500s. I think of the Roman Catholic Church, how corrupt it became. Uh, the rule of the, the papacy, the Pope, became so corrupt that uh, their word was more powerful than the word of God in their eyes. So it took uh, men such as Martin Luther, uh, who in 1517 uh, decided to uh, write 95 statements, his 95 theses, against the corruption of the selling of indulgences to earn your place in heaven uh, at the expense of uh, the people's money. So that corruption, you remember, if you guys remember, Martin Luther nailed that 95 Theses in 1517 on the Wittenberg door. And that, that door in Wittenberg, it was, was kind of like a, a school uh, pegboard, right? The announcement board. It, uh, he didn't take a big old sledgehammer and nail with a big old hammer, a nail, you know, on it, but he, uh, he did post it on there. And then some men uh, uh, took that 95 Theses and spread it across, I mean copies, and spread it across uh, the land. And we know that that's the ignition, that's the fuel of the Reformation, which sparked across uh, Germany, uh, England, and it was, a, it was going back to the Word of God, right? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, right? And I was speaking earlier uh, to someone, and um, that the Scripture has been attacked ever since Genesis, right? The devil has attacked Scripture. 
when he, when he twisted God's word when he was speaking with Eve. So God's word is constantly being attacked. So in the Reformation, they want, the reformers wanted, hey, Christ is the head of the church, not the pope. And we obey God rather than men. So he went against, like the other reformers, and then you see the other reformers, the pre-reformers, like John Huss, uh, uh, Wycliffe, who were the, the pre-reformers uh, to Martin Luther, who fought against the Catholic Church. But in 1509, Henry VIII became the king of England. And his... His life, if you read his, uh, about his life and church history, uh, especially through the lens of church history, uh, this guy was back and forth, right? He was a, a devout Catholic. Uh, he married uh, Catherine of Aragon, but she failed to produce a male heir for him. So he sought an annulment of his marriage from the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the Catholic Church did one thing right, they denied it. Right? They said, no, you can't, based on that. So Henry VIII went away from the Catholic Church, and he convinced the Parliament to side with him, which in 1534, he created laws that's called the Act of Supremacy. And this is where the corruption, right? This is where the church became part of the state. So Henry VIII made him the supreme head not only of England, but the Church of England. So not only was he the head of the church, but he was the head of England as well. So this corrupted the whole land. And uh, we see that the authority of God is forsaken uh, during this time, and that the dis disobedience to that authority of God's word, this, we see the corruption of man developing throughout history, specifically with Henry VIII, but we ultimately know that uh, the divine rule never fails. It never fails. There will always be men and women that will stand for the word of God, for God. And eventually, uh, Henry VIII died, and he had successions, you know, Henry, uh, Edward I, and it came down to, in 1553, Mary I, who is one of the most corrupt, evil uh, rulers known. John Fox in his uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, because of Mary's evilness, described her as Bloody Mary. She reigned from 1553 to 1558, but uh, she persecuted the Protestants during that time. It said it's estimated that 283 Protestants were tried and martyred under her rule. Dr. Steve Nichols describes in his book, The Reformation, regarding Mary. He says, Mary had a deep and abiding memory. She was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife. She remembered what mockery was made of her mother, and she remembered full well the part of that of Kramer, Thomas Kramer, played in that. 
She also was deeply devoted to her Catholicism. It would be her divine errand, so she thought, to rid England of the Protestant heretics, restoring the true church in Rome to its rightful place in England. She was so corrupt, she would persecute Protestants for speaking out against the throne of England and against the church. Now, I have a close connection during this time period. There's this man who was a martyr named John Rogers. And the close connection I have with him is that John Rogers is my 16th great-grandfather. He was a trained pastor at Oxford. He worked with William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale. They worked on the 1537 Matthew's Bible translation. You know anything about William Tyndale? He was highly persecuted. They sought to kill him. He had a pseudonym to hide his, uh, who he was. But Rogers stood firm like these other guys, and he would preach powerful sermons when Mary I came to throne. And John Fox, again, writes about Rogers, his sermon. He says, quote, He confirmed in his sermon the true doctrine taught in King Edward's time. Now, when King Edward was ruling, he was a Protestant. He welcomed Protestantism. But it says, continuing, Fox says, and exhorted the people to beware of the pestilence of the popery, which is the papacy, idolatry, and superstition. These powerful sermons that Roger preached led to his arrest and imprisonment. He was in prison for 12 months. He didn't get to see his wife or children. He had 10 at the time while he was in his imprisonment. We see the persecution that was happening Pastors being arrested. This sounds familiar. We see this today, and uh, especially with our brothers in Canada, uh, James Coates and Tim Stevens, uh, who were arrested, and now they've been released, but the, they're being persecuted for preaching uh, the gospel and, and the setting of a church to shepherd their, uh, their flock. But in February 4th, 1555, Rogers was taken from a cell at Newgate Prison in England and led to be executed. John Fox writes about this conversation between uh, one of the jailers, a guy who's identified as Mr. Woodruff. He escorted Rogers to the stake. And the conversation goes like this. Woodruff would ask Rogers to recant. And Rogers replied... That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Then Woodward responded, Then you are a heretic. Rogers responded to Woodworth, That will be known on the day of judgment. Woodward tells Rogers, Well, I'll never pray for you. But Rogers replies, But I will pray for you. So Rogers was immediately led to the stake. Crowds gathered at this spectacle. The crowd was encouraging and cheering Rogers as he's being led to the stake. But alongside him was his wife with their newborn baby, his loving child he's never seen, and his ten other children. Rogers has been heard 
quoting Psalm 51 as he's being led to the stake, reciting it from memory. Rogers was given one last opportunity to recant, but Rogers refused. Then Rogers was tied to the stake. The wood at Rogers' feet was lit on fire, and as the flames consumed his body, Rogers raised his hands up and began to rub them together. This was a symbol of washing his hands while repeating, Lord, receive my spirit. Rogers would finish the race like a good and faithful servant of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you all this to show you and to teach us the true righteous rule and reign of sovereignty. Man will fail us in their ruler, their rulership, their reign. But we have a one and true living God, Yahweh, that will never fail us. The God of the Bible, the God of the Old and New Testament, we know is sovereign over all, and he will reign. So let's turn to Psalm 93. Now I'm going to be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible because I like the, the way that translates it. Uh, I'll just add this to it. In your, in your text, if you see the, the word Lord all capitalized, that's the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. So the Legacy Standard Bible says, is, is this, in verse 1. Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Yahweh has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. Your throne is established from of old. You bear from everlasting. So, the Lord reigns. Psalm 93 is found in the book number four of the book of Psalms. It's a, it's believed from the changing of Davidic kingship to the Yahweh as a king. Uh, Gerald Henry Wilson, in his book, The Book of Psalms, he writes, to re this, the purpose of Psalm 93 in the book 4 is to redirect the hopes of the reader away from an earthly Davidic king to the kingship of Yahweh. So our focus is not on the kingship of human reign, but on the kingship of our Lord. So this morning in Psalm 93, we'll look at eight truths describing God's sovereignty. And that first truth is the, Lord, the Lord's reign is exclusive. The Lord's reign is exclusive. In verse 1, it says, The Lord Yahweh reigns. When we look at the Lord's reign, it's unique. It's absolute. It completely belongs to Him. No one else has the magnitude of the exclusivity such as the Lord. The Lord's exclusivity uniquely only to the Lord. He's authority or rule over heavens and earth. That's unique to him. The Lord is sovereign. He is the creator of all. He rules over all. And scripture tells us that the Lord is self-existent. And there's a fancy doctrinal ter term, the aseity of God. He is self-existent. In Exodus 3.14, this is where we find out the, the covenant name, right? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He's Yahweh. 
In John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has no other. Nobody's created him. His life is in himself. That's distinct to him only. That's exclusive to him only. And we see God requires nothing. In Acts 17, 25, it says, Nor is he, God, served by human hands as though he, God, needed anything. God needs nothing. He requires nothing. And we see that God does as he wills. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. In Isaiah 46, 10 through 11, it says, uh, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Then we see regarding our salvation, right? In Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption to himself. And the Christ rule over our life is exclusive. It's active, managing, control over us. In Colossians 3.15 it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. As a believer, Christ is supposed to rule over our lives and our hearts. He is our Lord. So not only is the Lord's reign exclusive, but it's also constant. This is our second truth. The Lord's reign is constant. And still in verse 1, the Lord Yahweh reigns. This, that first half of the verse 1 is all-encompassing of this exclusivity, this constant. God is unceasing. He's fixed, immutable. He never changes. He's consistent. God does not change his essence, character, purpose, and promise. We see that God is eternally the same. In Psalm uh, 102.27 it says, But you are the same, and your years have no end. God never changes. He's the same. And we've all heard the statements of, uh, from God that uh, he is the first and the last. In Isaiah 41 it says, The first and with the last I am he. Isaiah 46, I am the first and I am the last. God does not change. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, Yahweh, do not change. How comforting is that for us, that he's consistent? A human rule, right, they changed. It's ebb and flow. It's, we see in the, uh, the a climate of a ruler, a leader, it's basically popularity, they change. God doesn't. That should be comforting to us as believers that God never changes and will never change. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, meaning no change or shadow due to change. The sun, the moon, the stars change daily, they change monthly, yearly. God is not like the sun, moon, and, or stars. God is unchanging and constant. 
So not only is the Lord's reign exclusive and constant, but it's active. This brings us to our third point. The Lord's reign is active. The Lord Yahweh reigns. God is active. Another way of saying God is active is the providence of God over our lives. God exercises divine providence in preserving his creation. He directs the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. The Lord is reigning. He has been reigning. He will always reign. There was never a point where God rose to the throne. He's always been on the throne. God has acted on his rule. In Psalm 103, 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This is amazing right here, that God is active in our birth and our life. The psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is even active in our lives before we were even born, before we were even conceived. The Apostle Paul was set apart for God for service, even from the time of Paul's birth. And the Apostle Paul was unique. Speaking of persecutors of the church, he was a, a persecutor of the first century church. But God had different plans for him. Paul writes about, about this being set apart in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, But when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. God set Paul apart for a purpose, for his, God's purpose, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. God was active in Paul's life before he was even born. He was active in Paul's life when he was alive on his missionary journeys. God is active in the protection of his people, which this should be comforting to us as believers. In Psalm 4, 8, it says, In peace I will, will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make, the, make me dwell in safety. And God talks in the psalmist, You cover him with favor as with a shield. God protects us. Psalm 63, 8 says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand holds me up. David, in this psalm, clings to the promise of the Lord that the, this, David's strength is only found in the Lord and, and him alone. David's strength is not found in himself or any other ruler, which David was a ruler. It's found in the Lord. Wouldn't it be great if our leadership found their strength and their rule in the Lord and then in the Lord alone? In Psalm 21, verse 3, it says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. What a blessing that the God, Yahweh, never sleeps. 
Denver grows weary because he's active. And this promise in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So God directs through his providence, he directs the believer's life path, he's active in it, every part of the believer's life, the good and the bad, all four are good. God is active in providing for our people, for his people, I'm sorry. Genesis 22, when uh, God, uh, Abraham is speaking with the Lord, it says, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Remember the, the camping trip <laughs> with his son? Uh, when they bring a, a sacrifice, um, there's something missing here, Dad. But God provided, right? He provided the sacrifice in that instance. And then everybody knows this verse in Philippians 4:19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. How wondrous is that? Our needs will be supplied by our Lord. God is active in answering our prayers. And unlike any human ruler, God hears the prayers of his children. In Psalm 65, 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. And then Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus tells us that God is compassionate towards his children who are suffering. In Luke 18, verses 7 through 8, it says, And I will, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. There's compassion from our Lord passion. We see that the Lord is active in and through believers' lives and in all lives. The sovereign Lord cares and looks out for his subjects, his children, all for his glorification and his purposes. So not only is the Lord's reign exclusive, constant, and active, but it's infinite. Our first, fourth point is the Lord's reign is infinite. The Lord Yahweh reigns. The Lord reign, Lord's reign doesn't have a beginning or an end. And Psalm 46.10 says, The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Heaven and earth cannot contain God. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. In 1 Kings 8.27. Isaiah 60. 6, one says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That should make us feel like we're ants. Think of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah went to the throne room of grace. 
the train of God's robe filled the room. And Isaiah fell on his face because he was unclean. He had this reverence that he was sinful. That's how majestic our Lord is. That brings us to our fifth point. The Lord's reign is majestic. We see that in verse 1, it says, He is robed in majesty. Or in the New American Standards, the Lord is clothed with majesty. In this verse, God is described as robed, robed in majesty. This being robed and clothed with majesty is a description of royalty. Kings and royals were arrayed in royal garments, such as robes. God is here described as a majestic royal king. In Psalm 104.1, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. In God's majesty, we see that his name is even uh, majestic. Psalm 8, 1, says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And God is nowhere close to comparison with his creation. He's more majestic, far more majestic than his creation. In Psalm 76, 4, it says, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. And we see now that the Lord's reign is powerful. The Lord's reign is exclusive, it's constant, it's active, it's infinite and majestic, but it's also powerful. This is our sixth truth about the Lord's reign. The Lord's reign is powerful. It says, Yahweh has clothed and girded himself with strength. The Lord's strength, his power is displayed and ascribed as a belt to gird up his clothing for battle. What does this mean to gird or to wear a belt, to gird yourself? When guys, everybody, gentlemen, don't be afraid. Men wore kind of like, I want to say dresses, but uh, garments and that such, and they had belts around it. And when they fought or they did any activity, they tucked their garment into a belt so they won't trip or get tangled on things. So when it's describing the girded himself with strength, God is girding up ready for battle. He's powerful. He's prepared. He's always prepared. So this girding up is not only for battle, but it's for doing work. It's for carrying your sword, this belt. It's even for walking around for long distances. But the picture of a belt in Scripture is a picture of strength. You see that in Psalm 18 and Isaiah 22. Righteousness and faithfulness of Christ is seen in Isaiah 11.5. It says, Righteousness shall be the belt 
of his waist and of faithfulness the belt of his loins. There's the belt of truth. Ephesians 6.14, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Right? In the whole armor of God, we have the belt of truth, which is our word. But here God is not actually putting on a physical belt made of leather. God has no use for a man-made object such as a belt. The Lord is spirit. Here in Psalm 93, God is, God's belt is made up of his strength. The Lord puts on strength, meaning power. We know the attribute of God known as omnipotence, all-powerful. Throughout Scripture, God's power is described uh, in great detail. What, is, what does God's power look like? Well, the power of God is great. Psalm 79, 11, it says, Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your, the Lord's, great power. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. God's power looks like it's strong. Psalm 89.13, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Psalm 136.12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. The power of God is glorious. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Who has his glorious arm to go on the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them? In Isaiah 63, 12. The power of God is mighty. Job 9, 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. God's power is everlasting. Isaiah 26, 4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And Romans 1, 20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And amazing people walk around and their consciences become so corrupt even to the point of being seared, that they don't recognize God's eternal power seen through creation. We see that in our world today, in our culture, for sure. The power of God is incomparable. In Exodus 15, verses 11 through 12, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Job knew about the power of God being incomparable. In Job 49, he says, Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like this? In Psalm 89, 8, it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O oh Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. There's no one compared to God. No one. No one mighty like the Lord. God's power is unsearchable. Who does great things and, and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? Job 5.9. Job 9.10 says, Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? 
If they're unsearchable, God's power is unsearchable. God's power is incomprehensible. We can't comprehend it. Job 26, 14 says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? God's power is described as thunder. If anybody's been in a, a tornado area and there's thunderstorms and you hear the thunder and you're pretty nearby and you see lightning strike on the ground, you recognize that power. But God's power is more powerful than that. So we see that God's power is great, strong, glorious, mighty, everlasting, incomparable, unsearchable, incomprehensible. Well, this leads us to our seventh truth about the Lord's reign. The Lord's reign is immutable. When I mean immutable, it's unchanging, it's constant. Verse 1, it says, Yes, the world is established. It shall, now, it shall never be moved. Remember that God is unchangeable in his essence, character, purpose, and promises. He never changes. What are these attributes of God's immutability, his unchanging? God carries out his threats and promises. In Numbers 23, 19, says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29, And also the glory of Israel will never lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And God doesn't repent. Like we, as believers, we repent. In Romans eleven twenty nine, for the gifts and the calling of the God are irrevocable, irre- irreversible, and God does not forego His covenant promises. Read that in Romans eleven, where God still holds on to His covenant promises. Isn't that amazing that our Lord never fails to carry out His promises for his children, unlike a human leader who makes promises on a campaign trail maybe, or, but soon either forgets or pushes them aside. But our Lord does not forget his promises. God glorifies, glorifies him he foreknew. Again, in Romans 8, 29 through 30, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When I read that, I always draw to that he will glorify us one day it's all because of the son Jesus Christ God brings things to perfect completion 
In Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful promise that we live in this decaying body, uh, this sinful nature still attached to us, but God will seek it to completion. He will carry it out. We will be complete. This brings us to our eighth truth about the Lord's reign. The Lord's reign is eternal. The Lord's reign is eternal. Verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Unlike human kingdoms or rulers, the Lord's kingdom does not have a beginning or an end. God is without beginning. God is without end. God is not limited by the moments of time. Human kingdoms have a beginning. Human kingdoms have an end. Read history. Kingdoms fell. They rise and they fall. The Greeks, the Romans... Seems cyclical throughout history. Human kingdoms are not permanent, but God's kingdom is eternal. How is God eternal? He existed before creation. We know this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God had to exist before creation in order to create. In Psalm 92, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that phrase, everlasting to everlasting, means he has no beginning and end. He's always existed. And one of our Main text in the, the New Testament, John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not only God the Father is eternal, but God the Son. And then the whole Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. John 17, 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus speaking to the Father. Talking about their communion together before the world existed. And then in that same chapter in verse 24, Father, I desire, Jesus saying this to his Father, desire that you, they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God is eternal. God will endure forever. In Psalm 102, verse 27, but you, Yahweh, are the same and your years have no end. And then in Revelation, we read in verse 8 of chapter 1, holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We've had three repeated succession words. Holy, holy, holy is saying God is holy, holier, holiest. That's great emphasis on his holiness. God is etern- the eternal king. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is incorruptible and immortal. You see in Romans 1.23, Paul writes, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. God is immortal. In 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul again writes, Who alone has immortality? Who dwells in an unapproachable light? Whom no one has ever seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal, eternal dominion. God has the eternal purpose as well. Ephesians 3.11 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that He, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you ever read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So God is perfect, holy, wise, loving, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, good, truthful, and faithful, all eternal attributes. Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly contend to than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. For it is God upon the throne whom we trust. End quote. The Lord's reign, there's many things that we see have seen its exclusivity. It's a constant, eternal, active, unchangeable, incomprehensible. We see all these about the Lord's reign in our lives, and that should comfort us as believers. Now, as we looked at these attributes of the Lord's brain, 
Let's, let's look at some application so we can get a right understanding of the Lord's reign. Through the Lord's reign, we, we will see that there is security in the sovereignty of the Lord. That's number one. We will see there is security in the sovereignty of the Lord. We will experience betrayal, affliction, and abandonment, suffering in this life. People will fail us. We will fail others. But God will never fail. God is always faithful. Trusting in the Lord is what the Christian is supposed to do. Above the above attributes that we discuss, the above truths we have discussed about the Lord's reign, we can cement these truths, the biblical truths of trusting in the Lord. We see that trusting in the Lord is better than anything else. There are numerous passages. Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 118.6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Who can man do to me? No matter what's happening in our life, man can't do anything to us because we are eternal. We are Christ. We can trust in the Lord. We can take refuge. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So we have security in that, that God has our best interest. He has our best interest at hand, all for his purposes, all for his glorification, all for our good. That security we have in the Lord should bring comfort to our lives. And the second thing we can see is that there's salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord's reign, His providence is a way for sinners to be redeemed. The Lord's reign will give us confidence in the salvation found only in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Only an immortal, powerful, unchanging, active, constant God can secure and provide salvation to sinners. There is no other one who provides salvation. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. Remember in Acts 4, chapter 4, Peter's powerful message, his powerful sermon, where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The salvation of Jesus Christ, that's exclusive to him alone. There's no but or to it. Only in Christ is our salvation. And we all know John 3.16 and through uh, 
verse 18, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And Paul writes about the deep personal conviction of the person of Jesus Christ. Not just an acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is, because remember in Scripture that the demons know who Christ is. They have a knowledge of Christ, but do they have a personal relationship with Him? And Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Matthew chapter 7, right? Jesus talks about uh, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And that word knew, gnosko, is an intimate relationship. It's not just a knowledge. It's an intimate relationship. That word is used as similar to a marriage that comes together of a man and a woman in marriage. The intimacy, you know every aspect of your, your loved one. That's the relationship we have with Christ. That intimacy. And in Matthew 7, I think about, man, if it's okay. Hey, do you know Christ? Do we know Christ? Well, I want to think, and more importantly, does Christ know you? Does he know you intimately? And John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you. That gnosko in the Greek. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul writes, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't find a mediator in our, our leadership in government, Leadership at work. Nobody mediates for our salvation. Nobody mediates for our eternal good. Only Christ Jesus does. What is our purpose, the purpose of salvation? Paul writes in Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Our salvation brings glory to the Lord. Not only does it save us from eternal Damnation, but it brings him glorious praise and grace. And thirdly, we see there is sufficiency and authority of God's word. I mentioned before at the beginning of this message that God's word is being attacked continually, it's being ridiculed constantly. But the word of the Lord is sufficient. The sufficiency of the Lord's reign is majestic and exclusive and constant, unchangeable, powerful, glorious and infinite. The Lord's reign is unlike the reign of a human component. A human reign will fail. It will fail. It will change. It relies on human wisdom, not God's wisdom. 
We as believers have a source given to us, and that, that source is the Word of God. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen talks about the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a young preacher, telling him all Scripture is breathed, inspired, out by God and profitable. Listen, God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God's word teaches us. It teaches us doctrine. It teaches divine instruction of the Old and New Testaments. Dr. Steve Lawson has said, the higher your theology, the higher your doxology. The more you're in the Word, the more you absorb the Word, the more the Word abides in your heart and your mind, the higher your worship for the Lord will be. God's Word is for reproof, rebuking wrong behavior, not only in yourself, but to your brother and sister in Christ with gentleness and love. Because you want restoration. And then God's word is for correction, that restoration, right? You want to call out the, the wrong behavior, but you want to restore, correct it. Romans 7, 12 says, So the law is holy, talking about scripture, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's word is inerrant, it's without error, it's infallible. God's word is without error and never fails. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what is really it is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And in Hebrews 1.1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, that's Jesus Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's talking about the inspiration of God's Word. The Puritan William Grenall said, quote, If you mean your hope of salvation should rise to any strength and solidity, Study the word of God diligently. The Christian is bred by the word, and he must be fed by it. Jesus talked about we don't. We live by the bread, the word of God. That is our daily bread. And lastly, real quick, is that the Lord's reign will cause us believers to be sent out to proclaim the gospel message. There's an urgency to share the gospel message with the lost. 
We as believers have confidence in the Lord's reign. He sends us, his children, into the world to proclaim the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ. All believers are, in a sense, evangelists. They're missionaries. doesn't mean you have to go be sent off to a foreign land, uh, move towns. It could be in your home, your work, your city, your county, whoever you come across with to talk to. The proclamation of the gospel is commanded to all believers. We read that in Matthew 28, 19, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Well, that's the, emphasizing that if you make disciples, you shared the gospel, and they became believers. Not only are we supposed to share the gospel, but we are supposed to disciple those new believers. You don't just chuck a Bible at them and say, have at it, good luck. No, you guide them. You instruct them. Rich, Richard Baxter, another Puritan, said regarding the, the gospel, he said, quote, we are so reluctant to displease men and so desirous to keep in credit and favor with them that it makes us most unconsciously neglect our own known duty. A foolish physician he is, and a most unfaithful friend that will let a sick man die for fear of troubling him. And cruel wretches are we to our friends that will rather suffer them to go quietly to hell than we will anger them or hazard our reputation with them. Why are we fearful to share the gospel message? We don't want to be negligent. In that, we were proclaimed that God before the foundation of the world planned, predetermined to send His Son Jesus Christ into the world, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect, sinless life, to go willingly to the cross to atone, to pay for the penalty of the sins of all who believe, to satisfy the wrath of God, to die upon the cross, to conquer death, and rise from the grave three days later. Jesus ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. The right hand is a place of honor. That's the gospel. And I urge you, if you do not know Christ today, if you don't know him personally, intimately, that gnosko type of relationship that is commanded of us with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I call you to repent and to turn from your sins. Believe in him that is Jesus Christ, who redeemed you from your sins, who paid your penalty, the penalty of death, so that you can have eternal life with him. That is our Lord's reign over all. 
Let us pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.